we uh, are in the book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 27 this morning as we wind down. And uh, to open uh, our topic today, I want to talk about foolish mistakes. Now, I don't know about you, but I've made many foolish mistakes uh, through the years. We all have, right? Let's be honest. In fact, if we were to compare stories, we could sit here for hours on end talking about the foolish things uh, that we have done. And, and, and some of them, let's be honest, I mean, we're all family. Some of them are so regretful uh, and, and tough that we, we kind of keep them buried in the recesses of our mind. You know, we, we don't want to share them. Hopefully we, we remember the lessons we learned from them, but they were pretty painful experiences and painful bad choices that we made, right? But other foolish mistakes are not necessarily life-altering, but more of the humorous nature. And, uh, you know, the kinds of things that make us go, oh, boy, I cannot believe I did that. You know, that, that kind of mistake. Have you been there? Well, one of my more regrettable and embarrassing moments happened when I was 16 years old with all the wisdom thereunto appertaining as a 16-year-old. Uh, and let me set the stage for you. I grew up um, uh, hunting, hunting deer, hunting uh, other things too, turkey and quail and dove and stuff, but mostly deer. And it was really, it's a really fond memory of mine from about the age of 13 all the way through a college and even a little bit into my uh, adult life. But uh, my dad and I would take these trips uh, during deer season, sometimes two or three hunting uh, outings a, a season. And it was just a special time. And uh, it started when I was about 13. And I, I have vivid memories from these trips. I remember, for example, sitting in the front seat of my dad's Honda Civic while he was driving. Later, I would actually do some driving when I was learning to drive and getting my permit. It was a great chance on the open roads of Texas to drive that four hours out to a, a ranch that we hunted on. But I can remember sitting in the front seat with those hunting magazines, you know, the ones with all the beautiful pictures of the bucks on them. And I'd just be spending the whole time looking through, reading, and trying to pick up tips on how to get the big one, you know, and, and imagining what this hunt was going to be like. And we were really blessed. We hunted at some pretty awesome uh, places. And uh, these were, you know, 1,500-acre ranches where you always had deer, but it was a matter of, you know, picking the right one, making sure you, you waited and were patient for the big one, which I never did. My dad was a much better hunter than I was. But lots of fond memories, you know, sitting around the fireplace in the lodge, uh, listening to the other hunters. I was the youngest guy there by far. I was only, you know, kid there. Um, but I remember this one particular hunt. Uh, it was, uh, we would typically get there on a Thursday night, maybe Friday, midday. But anyway, we would hunt through Sunday morning, and then we'd head back. Well, if you'd already got your deer by the time Sunday morning came around, uh, you know, you could head on back, but we like to stick around just to hear the morning hunt crew come back and hear what stories they have. I mean, they might have killed who knows what, right? And uh, so we would stick around, but in this particular case, I had already killed my deer, my buck, and used my tag for that weekend. And so uh, I got up Sunday morning and put my street clothes on, my, tr my car clothes on, and, uh, and the rest of them were headed out for the morning hunt. And my Dad said, well, you know, we've got some dough tags. You should go on out and maybe get a dough. We'll use it for sausage, and it'd be nice to have some more meat. And I said, no, nah, I'm already, you know, I've already got my good clothes on. I'm not, I don't want to. He said, no, nah, just go, just go. The, the, the guys will send a Jeep, and they'll come, they'll gut the deer for you. You won't have to worry about getting all dirty. So anyway, I said, all right, I'll go. So I went, and, uh, you know, wasn't sure I was going to kill a doe. I thought, well, I'll just, you know, use my binoculars, see what I see. You never know. You might see some fun things, a fox or something, you know. And, but anyway, I got bored after about an hour. I said, okay, I'll go ahead and shoot a doe. So I shoot this doe, and I get down out of the stand, and I go up to it. And then I'm thinking, you know what? 
I know they said the Jeep will come and gut the steer, but if I don't gut the steer, I'm going to kind of hear about it from the guys back at the ranch house. They're going to think I'm lazy or I'll be the guy that didn't field dress his own deer. And I thought, I better, I better gut this steer. But then, in the wisdom uh, of only a 16-year-old, I began to think about the fact that my mom had just gotten me these brand new jeans for school. And I'm sitting here wearing these nice jeans. I still remember them. They were faded, not like these. I mean, these are a little bit faded, but these were kind of the really light blue ones, almost like your shirt, uh, Greg. And, uh, and I thought, if I get blood all over these jeans, my mom is going to absolutely kill me. Now, you have to know my mom to understand the depths of this fear. And so, anyway, I'm on the horns of a dilemma, right? Do I not field dress this deer and, and you know, face the ridicule of my hunting buddies, the older uh, men who are going to just never let me live it down, that I didn't field dress my own deer? Or... Do I get blood all over my jeans and face the wrath of mom uh, when I got home? So I did what any, you know, uh, sensible, uh, foolish 16-year-old kid would do in that situation. I took off my jeans and threw them over a branch on a nearby mesquite tree and began to gut that deer. Well, I had assumed the Jeep would not be coming back to get me until the morning hunt was over and I had plenty of time. But unfortunately, they had heard the shot and they... Came. So here I am standing there, just me and my BBDs standing over the steer, and here comes this Jeep over the rise of this trail. I'm caught, right? I mean, nothing I can do at that point. There's no way I'm going to get those jeans back on with my you know, hunting boots and all that in time. So I just kind of. So he comes up. I'll never forget it, the owner of the ranch, and he's in this Jeep. T picture the typical cowboy with kind of a John Wayne type, tall, just rugged. And he comes up in this Jeep, and he pulls it within about 10 or 15 feet, puts it in park, leans back, crosses his arms, tips up his cowboy hat. He's got a cigar. He takes a puff of the cigar, and he goes, Boy, what in the world are you doing? And so, of course, I said the only thing I could think of. I said, you know, a Bigfoot stole my pants, and uh, he, he didn't believe me. But, uh, you know, as we continue, so, so then you think I was worried about the, the uh, you know, the, the, the ridicule of not having gutted a deer. Trust me, I never lived that down. Every time we went back and hunted at that ranch and talked swap stories around the fire, it came up first. It was always the first thing coming. You remember that time old JB gutted that deer in his underwear? You know, it was, uh, I regret it to this day. But as we, as we continue our journey through Acts, we come to an exciting part of the narrative where a group of fools is very much on display. Turn with me to Acts chapter 27, and we're going to camp out in the first part of this chapter. We've got about three or four more uh, messages to go in this series. It's kind of bittersweet because I've really loved going through Acts the last uh, year and a half or so. But as Paul is interacting with the sailors and the others on this wild journey to Rome, filled with adventure, we see fools coming out of the woodwork. Paul is being brought to Rome to be judged. He would spend, you know, two years there under house arrest, uh, during which time he, he would write the, uh, the so-called uh, prison epistles, if you remember uh, those, uh, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, uh, and so forth. And... Uh, let me get back to my notes here. And he would uh, eventually uh, spend about two years under house arrest in Rome. And he would eventually be set free. And then, you know, he would spend the, 
the last five years of his life, going back and visiting some of the churches he had visited on his missionary journeys, and uh, he would write the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus, and then eventually he would be martyred in uh, the spring of 68 AD. So before we get to our text, I want to just kind of give an overview. We've been kind of talking about Paul for several weeks now and all of his escapades. So let's kind of go back and put this in historical context. So it all began when he got saved on the road to Damascus in 35 AD. Then you fast forward 14 years later to his first missionary journey, which was from April of 48 to September of 49. Remember Barnabas went with him on that trip. Then Silas joined him for his second missionary journey from April of 50 to September of 52. And then his third missionary journey, the longest, was from the spring of 53 to May of 57. And then uh, we've been talking about in recent weeks his trial first before uh, Felix as he heads to uh, Jerusalem, and then his uh, Caesarean imprisonment, which ended up being two years. Remember, during that time, he kept thinking, you know, maybe this will be the resolution to it. Maybe it'll finally be over. Maybe I can put this behind me. And it just kept getting prolonged. He ends up spending two years in prison there in Caesarea. And then he has his trial before Festus. And then we looked at most recently his trial before Agrippa. And Paul where we are today in the story, has just finished his powerful defense before Agrippa. Remember, Agrippa said, thou dost almost persuade me to be a Christian. And uh, so here we are. And ever since, uh, you know, the purpose of going to Rome to share the gospel with them had been planted in Paul's mind by the Holy Spirit, he has been single-minded about that trip. Every decision he made, everything he did, everything that happened to him was seen through the lens of that goal. No warnings of dangers to come could make him deviate from that goal. Remember, people uh, in Jerusalem, his friends, had said, look, don't go. You're, you know, trouble awaits you. He said, I have to go. So uh, during these, this time, the weeks had stretched into months and then years, and yet even though Paul was confronted at one crisis after another, he had God's assurance that he would reach Rome and he would be able to preach the gospel there. In, on his third missionary journey, he had written a letter to them, remember the book of Romans, and he had told them how much he desired to preach the gospel where it had never been preached before. So things did not happen the way Paul could have foreseen, or certainly not the way he wanted them to, but God was in control. And uh, Paul was fully willing to leave the details in God's hands, something that we could learn a lesson about. So the journey to Rome that we're looking at this morning, or at least the start of it this morning, tells us much more about the personality, the character of Paul. We learn a lot about that from his letters, and we learn a lot about from it in earlier parts of Acts and in his journeys and the interactions that he had. But boy, we really get a powerful glimpse at his character uh, in this uh, journey. Though he's a prisoner on this boat, he really becomes the leader, and he helps rescue all those who were traveling with him, over 200 people. And he, he actually lives out what he had written not long before this, a couple of years before this, in 2 Corinthians, when he said, Though I am weak, I become strong. So it was both a horrible experience, both in the sense of that he's in change, and yet also you know the shipwreck that we're going to talk about. Uh, but also, it was a powerful experience. God really used him. Um, so... Uh, you know, before we get to what I'm going to talk about today, five examples or characteristics of fools that we see kind of in this story, I want to, by way of introduction, uh, just talk about, uh, you know, where, where he, where he, how it all starts. So the, the journey starts August 
of 59. It ends up being about five or six months. And Luke begins it uh, this way. He says, and when it was decided that we should sail to Italy. Notice the first person plural there. Luke has been with Paul from the time he left Philippi on his third missionary journey way back in Acts 20 and all the way through a Caesarean imprisonment. And now he's traveling with Paul to Rome and he, and he probably ministered to him. So he says, when it was decided that we should sail to Rome, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan Regiment. Now, the Augustan Regiment, your Bible might, depending on your English version, might say the Augustan Cohort, uh, but it was a battalion of a thousand soldiers. And these regiments served various law enforcement and judicial functions within the Roman Empire, and uh, Julius was in charge of that. He was a, a centurion. Since Paul was a Roman citizen who had appealed to Caesar, Paul enjoyed greater privileges than some of the other regular prisoners. And Julius is another example of a centurion that interacted with Paul that treated him kindly, graciously. Luke tells us he treated him kindly with consideration. And then he says, So entering a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, meaning to sail along the coasts of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Aristarchus, like Luke, had been with Paul all through his Caesarean imprisonment, and now he travels with him all the way to Rome. Paul actually mentions Aristarchus in a couple of his prison epistles, Colossians and Philemon. And there's no doubt that these companions really helped Paul gain the respect that he needed from others, but also provided great encouragement to him. So Luke goes on, the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, there you go, and gave him liberty to go to his friends. Remember, Paul had friends all along that region because he had made these journeys and shared the gospel and seen people come to faith. So they stop at Sidon. He goes and visits his friends and receives care. And when we had put to sea from there, we sailed under the shelter of Cyprus because the winds were contrary. So Sidon, I'm going to show you a map in a second, but it's 70 miles north of Caesarea. And Paul's friends were the members of the church is there. And wherever he went, a soldier would have accompanied him. Remember, he was under arrest. Uh, he had appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he was going. Uh, prevailing winds in the Mediterranean during the spring and fall usually blow from west to east and often from the northwest. So the ship sailed north, heading up the east side of the island of Cyprus. So this just gives you kind of a picture of this journey. We're not going to get all the way to Rome today. We're going to leave Paul stranded in the middle of the ocean. Uh, we'll have to wait till next week to rescue him all the way to Rome. But they start out down there in Caesarea in the bottom right. They head north. You can see Sidon uh, is uh, the first stop. You know, toward the end of the 19th century, in modern times, a group of Scottish skeptics and unbelievers decided they wanted to expose all the errors in the Bible. So they designated uh, one from their group to visit all the places that Luke mentioned that Paul visited on this journey to Rome with a view to proving that the, the record of Acts was inaccurate. So they chose a man by the name of Sir William Ramsey. And he set out, uh, and after a thorough study of each of these places, comparing it to what God's Word says or what Luke says in God's Word, he concluded that Luke was accurate in absolutely every detail, even the minutest detail. And he became a Christian, and he ends up writing several books on Acts and Paul in defense of God's Word. But this just gives you an idea of, of, of where they were headed. We're going to end up down there today on the island of Crete. And then they got to move westward across that large expanse. And they're going to end up getting shipwrecked at Malta. And we'll say more 
about that. Luke goes on, when they had sailed over the sea, which is off Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. There, the centurion Julius found an Alexandrian ship that was sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. So uh, Julius transfers his party to another ship. This one's bound for Italy. It was a grain ship, we find out later in, in verse 38. Uh, and we also know, Luke tells us, it had 276 passengers. Now, at this time in the ancient world, there were no passenger ships. So you couldn't just take a ship as a, uh, you know, you know, that was dedicated for that purpose. You would hop on board and pay a fare, but hop on board other ships that were being used to transport goods. In this case, it was wheat. And this ship's port of origin was Alexandria, the capital of Egypt. Egypt was a major supplier of grain for Italy uh, in that day. And a large fleet of these ships sailed regularly between Egypt and Italy along the coast of Israel, Syria, Asia Minor, Asia, Asia Minor. and we know from uh, 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 one ancient description of this ship that these were very large ships, usually 180 feet long, 50 feet wide, and 44 feet uh, uh, from the deck to the hold. So uh, Luke goes on, when we had sailed slowly for many days and arrived with, arrived with difficulty off Snidus, the wind not permitting us to proceed, we sailed under the shelter of Crete, off Salmone, passing it with difficulty, and we came to a place called Fair Havens, near the city of Lacia. So Snidus was on the southwestern tip of Asia Minor, where what we now call the Agency and the Mediterranean Sea meet up. It was about 108 miles south of Ephesus, uh, in modern-day Turkey, and this northwesterly wind forced Paul's ship southwest across this 180-mile-long island of Crete. We've talked about Crete before. It was the biggest island in the area. And so by sailing off Crete's eastern and southern coasts, the ship was finally able to reach the port of Fair Havens. And we're going to pick up the story from there. But since we're talking about fools on display, I want to make sure we understand and have a good working definition of what a fool is, so one more thing before we get to these five characteristics of fools, and that is, what is a fool? Well, if you read the Bible, particularly the book of Proverbs, we get a good understanding of what it means to be a fool. A fool is a person who does not take God into account in their lives. They go it alone. Uh, they ignore God's presence and reality. They make decisions apart from God. Now, in the positional sense, if you've never trusted Christ, as Greg was talking about, uh, in our opening time today, and you don't know the Lord Jesus, you're not a Christian, then you're a fool positionally. You are doing all of life apart from Him. You have no relationship with Him. You have no gift of eternal life. You're not born again. But even born-again believers who have, in fact, trusted in Christ can still do foolish things, as we talked about a moment ago, right? We all do dumb things. Sometimes these are serious that have life-altering effects and, and things we regret and we, we wish we could block out of our mind. Sometimes the consequences are less significant. Maybe you'll get ribbed a little bit by your hunting buddies, but we still make mistakes, right? And so, uh, you know, fools have both a positional sense and a practical sense. And even if you know the Lord, you can act foolish. And that's why we want to learn these lessons that we're talking about today. But a fool is a person who doesn't consider God, who just tries to go it on their own without thinking about God's perspective. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
And uh, this despise there is a hyperbole, but it's just they have no interest in is the idea. So five ways that fools were on display in this encounter. Let's pick up the narrative in verse 9. And the first thing we're going to see is that fools ignore wise counsel. Fools ignore wise counsel. Luke continues, Now when much time had been spent and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. So he's talking there about the Day of Atonement, which always fell in the fall, sometimes as late as early October. And it was considered very dangerous to travel by sea from any time in, say, mid-September all the way to mid-November. In fact, the harbors were closed after that for winter. And so, really, you, you, you didn't travel from roughly mid-September until early March, just because it was too dangerous. And that's what Luke is saying here. Uh, the fast was already under, already into that window of time when it's dangerous to travel by sea. And so Paul advised them, saying, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss. This is just Paul giving his advice, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. Now, later on, the Lord's going to give Paul special revelation and encourage him that no lives will be lost. But at this point, Paul is just speaking as a seasoned sailor. Remember, in 2 Corinthians, which Paul had already written a couple of years earlier, uh, he has specifically mentioned being shipwrecked three times. So Paul wasn't just some scared prisoner. He was a seasoned veteran, and they should have listened to his advice. So he recommended that they, they stay through the winter right there at Fair Havens. A strong northerly or northwesterly wind that frequently came up unexpectedly could really blow the ship off course and end up with disaster. And in fact, that's as we're going to find out, that's exactly what happened. So, But despite Paul's warnings, the foolish captain, as we shall see next, ignored his counsel. And, you know, the, the Bible tells us, if we go back to Proverbs chapter 1, this is, uh, in the context here, this is wisdom personified. Wisdom is speaking as if it's a person <clears throat> and basically saying, it's not going to end well for fools, apart from God's divine intervention uh, and grace. Listen to what wisdom says. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. That's foolish to not listen to wisdom. Proverbs says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. And see, these fools ignored wise counsel. The second thing we see is they are easily manipulated. Fools can be easily manipulated because they're not taking God into account. They don't have a firm, infallible standard you know, to look to and compare things to. They're left to their own devices, and therefore, they're very easily manipulated. Luke continues, nevertheless, the centurion, remember, he's in charge. Okay, he, He's the highest-ranking Roman official. He's in charge, even though there's a, uh, a captain. The helmsman there means captain and owner. Uh, he's responsible for these soldiers, and he's in charge. So the centurion, Luke tells us, was more persuaded by the helmsman and the owner of the ship than by the things spoken of by Paul. And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, now, Fair Havens, you could have wintered there, but it was not nearly as desirable as Phoenix, which was about 45 miles farther to the west along the southern Cretan coastline. And so here... These oh, the captain and the owner, they're thinking, if we can just get 45 miles down, 
it'll be so much better. Because they're going to have to spend several months there waiting out the winter before they can continue their journey to Italy. So they, you know, they, they, they could either stay in a Motel 6 or they could stay, you know, in a Hilton or something. That was kind of the idea. And so, but Paul says, don't do it. Just stick it out here. It's going to be dangerous. But again, the centurion was more persuaded. He was easily manipulated. He wasn't heeding wise counsel. And notice, because the, the harbor was not suitable to winter, the majority advised to set sail from there also. So they, the captain and the owner, you know, probably got uh, some more advice from some more fools, uh, but they were just simply looking for echoes, not answers. And so they, they wanted people to confirm, yeah, yeah, let's go, let's go, that'll be much better. It's only 45 miles, what could possibly happen, right? And so uh, if by any means they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete opening toward the southwest and northwest and winter there. So the, the centurion who had the final say in this matter rejected Paul's advice, allowed himself to be manipulated and persuaded by the helmsman and the owner. So fools don't think analytically. They think emotionally. They don't consider all the facts. In fact, going back to Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 13, every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool lays open his folly. He, they didn't consider all the facts. They didn't really sit down and count the cost. Um, the wisdom of the prudent is to understand his way, but the folly of fools is deceit. They're easily deceived, easily manipulated because they don't have a true standard. They're not considering the ways of God, which today we get directly from uh, his word. And by the way, the same thing can be true, can, can be said today of believers 2,000 years later uh, who are not walking in the Spirit. So today we need to, to study the Word of God. We need to be rooted in the Word of God. We need to have discernment. John tells us in the, toward the end of the New Testament, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. We talked about this recently at a prophecy night here on Tuesday nights. Test the spirits. Believers need to be discerning. So uh, fools ignore wise counsel. Then they're easily manipulated. And then look at this as we continue on. Fools see what they want to see. Fools just see what they want to see, right? Once they've already made their decision, they're not going to be persuaded. Luke tells us, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire. Notice that. It's a nice breeze, you know. Let's go. What, what could be wrong? They put out to sea. They sailed close by Crete. But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called Eurocliden. Now, some ancient manuscripts of the New Testament say Euroquilin. So your Bible might say Euroquilin. Euroclidon means a southeasterly wind. Euroquilin means a northeasterly wind. But either way, it was a dangerous, serious weather system that stirred up the huge waves and caused a problem. The, chin, the, the wind had changed from a mild southerly breeze to a violent gale. And because these fools were determined to get to a, a, a nicer place to camp out for the winter, they saw what they want to saw. See, they said, oh man, this is great. Southerly breeze. Let's just get up the lawn chairs, grab the suntan lotion. We'll just 45 miles. We'll be there. It won't take very long, a uh, few days maybe, and we'll be there. But you know, when you see what you want to see, you're at risk of making serious mistakes. There's a blind spot there. And that's why the wise person keeps his eye on the Lord and his word. Proverbs says, wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding. But notice the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. 
their eyes are wandering. And it's easy to let your eyes wander when you're a fool, focusing only on what we want to see, focusing on what we hope to see. It's kind of like a full self-fulfilling prophecy. Proverbs says, a fool has no delight in understanding, but in expressing his own heart. Amen. That's a fool, right? Yeah, been there. I've been there. So fools ignore wise counsel. They're therefore very easy to manipulate. And then they begin to see what they want to see. They want to be able to justify their actions. Fourthly, fools become paralyzed by their fears. Fools become paralyzed by their fears. It starts to really get interesting here as we pick it up in verse 15. So when the ship was caught and we could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Now I'm reading from the New King James here. Uh, you know, literally let her drive in Greek is, is to let her be driven. It's passive. And the New American Standard has a pretty good translation here. They say, and we could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and let ourselves be driven along. Now think about that. That's a scary place to be. In other words, they have no control anymore. They're just adrift, right? They can't call the Coast Guard. They can't call up, you know, the weather system on their GPS. And they're just, it's just them. And they're at, they're at the mercy of the winds, the mercy of the waves, and so he says, and running under the shelter of an island called Clauda, uh, which can be alternately spelled Cauda without the L, we secured the skiff with great difficulty. Now let me bring up the map again. I pointed the arrow there to where Cauda was, just south there of the big island of Crete. And, and so, you know, that's, that's where they were. Uh, but they were, they were no longer in control of the vessel. As fools, they were dependent only on luck. That's all fools have, right? Um, they had no trust or confidence in the Lord. They weren't considering God in this situation, which is the definition of a fool. So they end up there at Cauda. And Luke goes on in, in uh, verse 17, When they had taken this skiff on board, they used cables to undergird the ship, and fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirtis sands. Now, that's capitalized because it was a well-known, dangerous spot uh, off the African coast, west of Cyrene. At that time, today, it's Libya. And, and it's known for just capturing ships, basically. They're, once they get into that quicksand and that, those shoals, they're in deep trouble. So another safety measure that they applied was to feed ropes over the bow and to hold them tightly against the ship's hull from each side drawing up tight under the ship, and then these ropes would help reinforce the internal braces of the hull. And that's what they were doing, just trying to hold it together as best they can. And because they were exceedingly tempest-tossed, uh, the next day they lightened the ship. So, you know, compasses didn't exist at this time. They plotted their course by the stars or by islands that they could see and that they recognized. But Luke says they feared they feared. Luke is watching this happen. Luke wasn't fearful because he knew what the Lord's promise was. Um, but he's watching these fools on display the same way we are as we read this account inspired by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Um, so we read on. On the third day, we threw the ship's tackle overboard with our own hands. Luke was part of this. It's all hands on deck, right? We got to help keep this ship from falling apart. 
And now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. So the ship was taking on so much water, being violently tossed by the storm, that the captain ordered them to throw overboard as much wheat as they possibly could. Now we know from later on in this chapter that they had some wheat left. They probably kept some of it for to counterbalance and also to eat. They had to have some food, but they would ration it because they didn't keep much. Um, and and you know it was it was just a desperate situation. And, and Luke tells us when all hope that we would be saved was finally given up, all hope was lost. All hope was lost. That's the desperate heart cry of a fool because they have no place else to turn. By the way, this is a good example of the way the word saved, which is one word in Greek, it's the word sozo, which is used uh, 108 times in the Greek New Testament, does not always mean eternal salvation. In fact, more than half the time it does not. It can be translated healed, rescued from danger, sickness, harm, in this case saved from a shipwreck. Uh, Luke wasn't saying here all hope that we would go to heaven was finally given up. It was they all hope that we would survive, right, physically. So we need to keep that in mind. We are prone whenever we read the Bible and we see the word saved to think in terms of heaven or hell. But actually, more often than not, it's talking about physical deliverance. And that will help us avoid some theological uh, mistakes, especially with passages like James 2, 14 to 26. That passage has been butchered through the centuries by the church because people assume it means heaven or hell. James isn't saying faith without works will send you to hell. He's just saying faith without works won't keep you alive. You can have faith, that will get you to heaven, but if you don't have good works, it's not going to help you avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin. James had just said in chapter 1, I'm way off point here, but James had just said in chapter 1, sin when it's full grown brings forth death. So if a believer fools around with sin, eventually you could die. Sin is a killer, and it's an equal opportunity killer. So he's saying, you may have faith, that's great. He calls them brothers, he describes them as being born from above in chapter 1. He never questions their eternal destiny. But he says, but if you want that faith to, to you know, have benefits and practical benefits in this life and help you avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin. you got to have works. Faith without works won't keep you alive. That's the idea. It says nothing about heaven or hell. But we read, going back uh, to Proverbs, that this idea of not having a hope without the Lord is, is, is a desperate place to be. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. But whoever walks wisely will be delivered. Notice the fear of man brings a snare. Because, you know, who are you going to depend on? People will let you down. And there may not be any human being that has the power or is in a position to help you. So the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Again, going back to Proverbs 1, where wisdom is personified here. But whoever listens to me, wisdom, will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. See? Evil in the Hebrew language doesn't mean morally evil, the way we think of it, wickedness. It just means danger, devastation, problems, difficulties, right? And so if you trust in the Lord, you won't be paralyzed by fear. You won't be like the fools who, when they realize the error of their way, are suddenly overcome with fear. But finally, and this is the encouraging part, we learn that even fools are no match for a sovereign God. No matter how foolishly we act, no matter how much we ignore or neglect God as believers, He's still in control. And He's bigger than our foolish mistakes. You know, He can 
overcome that. And we've all been there. We've all seen that. It's called God's grace. Sometimes in our foolishness, he allows us to experience the consequences of our own actions as a teachable lesson. Sometimes by his grace, he says, I hope you realize what could have happened there. I'm going to let this one go. But, you, you know, he's sovereign. Either way, it's totally up to him. He's not dependent uh, or reactive to our foolish uh, decisions. So verses 21 and 22, but after long abstinence from food, again, they were having to ration what food was left on the ship. Then Paul stands up in the midst of them. And you need to understand, he's not gloating here. That's what I would do. <laughs> Great big old I told you so, you know, with a megaphone. And that might seem like what he's doing here, but that's not what he's doing. He's actually encouraging his fellow travelers to believe what he's about to tell them because what he had predicted previously had just come to pass. So he's like, my God has credibility. You should have listened to me, but now you should listen to me again because what I'm about to predict is also going to come true. What does he say? Men, you should have listened to me and not have sailed from Crete and incurred the disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart First of two times he's going to use that phrase, take heart. He's trying to encourage them. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Well, I mean, that's kind of interesting. It's right. It's like, don't worry. The ship's going to be destroyed, but you, none of you will die. I hope you can swim, is basically what he's saying. But where did he get this from? He didn't just pull this out of thin air. This is fascinating. I love this. He goes on. This is Paul speaking. For there stood by me this night an angel of God, to whom I belong, of the God, to whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. He's told him that again and again. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So this angelic messenger confirms what God had previously said to Paul repeating this promise that he was going to make it to Rome. And then he added this time that all on board would reach land safely as well. And notice Paul's beautiful expression here of his total commitment to the Lord, to whom I belong and whom I serve. Paul rarely missed an opportunity to give the Lord credit, having really experienced God's grace like few ever have or will. Going from a murderer of Christians and a hater of Christ to a chief apostle of Christ. So the wise person not only trusts God, but consequently serves him unwaveringly. He goes on, therefore, take heart. There it is again. Take heart, men, for I believe God. I love that. Yeah, Paul is encouraging these despairing. You got to get the scene there. I mean, this thing is there. There, It's almost all over, but the drowning, right? I mean, this is a desperate situation. And so these desperate companions of his, probably also seasick by now, he encourages them to take heart. I believe God. Faith in God gave Paul great confidence and hope, as it always should. I mean, that's the very definition of faith, right? Simply believing that things will be just as God says they will be. Simply believing that God will do what he said he will do. That's faith. And Paul says, I believe, God, that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. He's talking here about the island of Malta, which we'll get to uh, next uh, week. He'll have to tread, these people have to tread water for about a week, and then we'll come back to them. But God is in control. God is sovereign. God is in control of our fools 
and our foolish choices. Uh, Proverbs tells us the great God who formed everything gives the fool his hire and the transgressor his wages. That's just a creative way to say God's in charge of the fools. Right? God, no fool is going to thwart God's uh, plan. And, and that's indeed what we see happen in this passage. So we looked at this verse again, but the broader context here from earlier, then they will call on me, this is wisdom, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They didn't take God into account. They would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. So again, you see this juxtaposition of sometimes God's sovereign plan is for Paul and all of his shipmates, 276 of them we find out, making it, surviving the shipwreck and getting to Italy. Sometimes God says, no, you, you didn't heed my counsel, so you're going to eat the fruit of your own way. But either way, either way, God is sovereign. So what have we said? Just to review, fools ignore wise counsel which leads them to be easily manipulated. Then they see what they want to see and quickly become paralyzed by their fears because they have nowhere to turn. But fools are no match for a sovereign God. I can't wait for next week because we're going to see kind of where it goes from here and they get to Malta and some really cool things happen on the island of Malta. But what's the takeaway this morning? Here's what I want to leave you with. Proverbs 1. We've camped out there a lot today because that's where we learn about wisdom and foolishness. But a wise man will hear and increase learning. And a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. So even when we make foolish mistakes, God is still God. His wisdom is right there for us to embrace, to learn from, to grow spiritually, to increase our faith. So as you go throughout your week this week, ask yourself, are you a wise man, a wise woman? Are you taking God into account? Are you acknowledging his presence and reality in your life? Are you making decisions with his input, input from his word, not in a subjective, mystical way, not like you're looking for some, you know, writing on the wall or some message in a bowl of spaghetti or something crazy like that. You, you go to the word of God to find your counsel, right? The word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right? Are you doing that? So I, I don't know where you're at today in your journey. Um, you know, metaphorically speaking, there may be folks here that feel like you're about to be shipwrecked. You know, things are, the storm is raging. Others may be, you know, going along okay, but have you stopped to consider things from God's perspective? Are you taking God into account? That's, that's the question. If not, I hate to say it, then that's foolish. And to be more blunt, if you're foolish, that makes you what? A fool, right? So uh, let, me, let me challenge you and encourage you to take God into account. And, uh, and then you won't, as I did, find your foolishness on display for everyone uh, to see. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for... Your word today, thank you for this uh, really fascinating uh, story, true story from life and history that shows your hand of blessing and also your guidance to Paul as he's headed to Rome where he would preach the gospel. Lord, I pray if there's one here within the sound of my voice that has not trusted in your Son and our Savior for eternal life, that today would be the day of salvation. Today would be the day that they go from being a 
positional fool permanently to being permanently a child of God by faith. They've received the payment made on their behalf by the blood of your Son and our Savior who rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And by virtue of receiving that payment from him, they become a child of God. And, and Lord, we pray they would do that today in simple childlike faith. For the rest of us, Lord, strengthen our faith. May your rebukes be gentle, and may we take you into account in all that we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.